0: Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video or podcast on your favorite platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms. If you go to miamighostchronicles.com, you can find links to the videos or MP3 files, which you can download and enjoy without commercial interruptions. If you're into classic horror, ghost, and adventure stories, I narrate Nightshade Diary, and you can find links at nightshadediary.com. If scary stories are your bag, and listening to encounters with cryptids, ghosts, dogmen, and other weird creatures sends a shiver up your spine, then go to supernaturalstorytime.com for links to our weekly podcasts. Noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird can be found at erie.news or visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at miamighostchronicles.com. Please subscribe to my newsletter on Substack. Just go to mppelliser.com for a link. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural, and today we're going to go back, back in time to the Old West. Very interesting time to be living in what was called the New Mexico Territory. And the title of this episode is Brazil, the Cowboys, and UFOs. In 1947, Mac Brazil came across strange debris on a ranch near Corona, New Mexico. What happened afterward became known as the Roswell Incident. However, this part of the country had its own strange history, including the Brazil and other pioneer families who were intertwined by either loyalty or revenge. Many years before the discovery, and about 50 miles from Roswell, William Henry McCarty, sometimes known as William H. Bonney, but best known as Billy the Kid, rode through Texas and the New Mexico Territory and into Western legend status. This was a place where laws were scarce and disputes were settled with a six-shooter. In 1878, the Lincoln County War raged between rival factions that started over government beef contracts but was fueled by revenge killings. Both sides had lawmen, businessmen, ranch hands, and criminal gangs among their members. Billy the Kid was hired by John Tunstall as a cattle guard. He was on one side known as the Regulators and Cattle Baron John Chisholm on another. During the three years of the war, 19 persons were killed. Accused of killing some of Chisholm's men. Sheriff Pat Garrett was hired to hunt down the kid. Governor Wallace also put a price on his head. In December 1880, Garrett and his posse ambushed Billy the Kid and others riding with him at Fort Sumner. In a case of mistaken identity, Garrett shot a foleyard for the kid who escaped with the other men. Three days later, the posse caught up with them at Stinking Springs. He was taken to Santa Fe to stand trial for the murder of sheriff brady the trial started in april 1881 a lawyer colonel albert jennings fountain was chosen to represent the kid prior to this appointment fountain had written harsh editorials on billy's former gang two days later a guilty verdict was returned for first degree murder and the date of execution was set for may 13. billy the kid would be the only person convicted for any crime stemming from the lincoln county war two weeks later the kid who was no stranger to escaping, asked the guard to take him to use the bathroom. He somehow got the gun away from the guard and shot him dead. He then grabbed a 10-gauge shotgun from Sheriff Garrett's office and from a second-story jailhouse window shot a second guard. Using a pickaxe, the kid hacked the shackles off his ankles. He stole a horse and disappeared. On a tip, Sheriff Garrett tracked him down again to where he was hiding in the house of Pete Maxwell, a land baron. The rumor was that Paulina Maxwell, Billy's sweetheart, was pregnant with his child. Like those fortunate or unfortunate moments of life, depending on which side of the equation you're on, it was close to midnight on July 14, 1881, when Garrett sat next to Maxwell's bedside. The light was dim in the room when Billy the kid stepped through the door. He didn't recognize the man sitting in the shadows and asked, Who is it? several times. The answer he got was a bullet from Garrett's gun. He was hit with one of two shots in the chest. The first to see Billy was DeLuvina Maxwell, a Navajo woman taken in by the Maxwell family when she was nine years old. She was a friend of the kid. DeLuvina died in 1927 and was quoted as saying in reference to Garrett. He was afraid to go back to the room to make sure whom he shot. I went in and was the first to discover that they had killed my little boy. I hated those men, and I am glad that I have lived long enough to see them all dead and buried. A coroner's jury ruled the kid's death was justifiable homicide. He was buried the next day in a borrowed white shirt, much too large for him, in a thrown-together wooden coffin made by a village handyman. He kept company next to his fallen friends, Tom Ofoliard and Charlie Bowdre. Padre Reddin at Anton Chico said, quote, Billy did not have a bad heart. Really, most of his crimes were crimes of vengeance. In the 1940s, a single tombstone was erected over their three graves with the words PALS etched into it. The memorial was stolen and recovered twice since it was set in place and the area is not enclosed with a steel cage. However, there are some that dispute it's not Billy the Kid in the ground there. In 2021, a movie titled Old Henry was released, and it gives an alternate ending to the kid's life. As the years passed, much of Billy the Kid's escapades were exaggerated or romanticized, and Pat Garrett's history is just as contradictory. A tall man who measured 6 feet 5 inches, he was known for being a womanizer, drinker, gambler, and slow to pay his bills. His marriages also caused gossip. Among the natives of Lincoln County, he was known as Juan Largo or Long John. Garrett spent his early years hunting buffalo, and during this time he killed another hunter named Joe Briscoe. He surrendered at Fort Griffin, Texas, but they didn't prosecute him. Once the Buffalo business declined, he headed to the New Mexico Territory. In 1879, he married Juanita Martinez, who died two weeks after their wedding. She was 18 years old. Within a few months, he married Apolinaria Gutierrez. She outlived him and gave him eight children. Ironically, Garrett authored a biography of Billy the Kid titled Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, released in 1882. Ash Upson acted as his ghostwriter, and in many instances, parts of the book were not entirely accurate. The killing of Billy the Kid, who was favored by the common people, seemed to turn the tide of fortune against Pat Garrett. He lost the election for Lincoln County Sheriff and never received the $500 reward offered for the kid's capture because he was killed, not brought in alive. He also lost the election for Sheriff of Grant County, New Mexico. Two years later, He lost a race for the New Mexico State Senate. In 1889, he suffered another loss when he ran for Chavez County Sheriff. It wasn't only the sneaky way he killed Billy the Kid that affected his popularity, but also his fiery temper. He was known as being impolite and discourteous. However, with his family, he was a kinder man. After leaving New Mexico, the family relocated to Uvalde, Texas for a few years, where Pat ran a horse operation. In 1892, He took his six-year-old daughter Elizabeth, who was born blind, to the Blind Institute in Austin, where she studied music and singing. She became an accomplished composer and singer, and composed the New Mexico State song, O Fair New Mexico. She was referred to as the songbird of the Southwest. Pat Garrett, forever afterwards, was known as the man that shot Billy the Kid, and fame didn't keep trouble away from his doorstep. His gambling and hard-drinking ways lost him allies. In 1905, Garrett angered President Roosevelt, who did not reappoint him to the post of Customs Collector of El Paso, which he was given in 1901. Pat, his wife Apollinaria, and their numerous children returned to their ranch in the San Andres Mountains. In order to pay his mortgage, he leased his ranch to Wayne Brazell, but told him only to stock cattle and horses. Brazell instead herded goats and sheep, which could ruin the cattle pasture. Garrett, Ordered him off the land. Right about then is when James P. Miller wanted to buy Garrett's Bear Canyon Ranch in southern New Mexico. Miller and his brother-in-law Carl Adamson, who agreed to lease the ranch, were known as notorious outlaws. But Garrett didn't care. Negotiations were underway when Garrett told Miller a goat man named Wayne Brazel leased a part of the land, and that he would have to be evicted. Eviction, though, was not in Wayne Brazel's plans and he demanded $3.50 per head of his goats and sheep. With a herd of 1,200 animals, this amounted to $4,200. Then, for good measure, Brazil raised the price, thus quashing the deal, when Miller didn't have the money to pay him off. But finally an agreement was reached, and they headed to Las Cruces to finalize the deal. 1908 was a leap year, and on February 29th Pat Garrett and Carl Adamson headed for Las Cruces on a buggy. Brazil was headed in the same direction, but on horseback. It's not sure who caught up with who, but eventually they all met together. Garrett and Brazil argued about the goats, and Garrett said, quote, It didn't make any difference whether Brazil moved off of the property or not. He, as in Garrett, would get him off the ranch somehow. Considering there were only three persons to witness the conversation, more than one version exists. One account had Garrett climb out from the buggy with the intention of urinating holding his folding shotgun in his right hand. He turned his back on Brazel, who proceeded to shoot him twice in the back of the head. The other version agrees that both were arguing, and when Garrett reached under the buggy seat to get his shotgun, Brazel beat him to the punch and shot him, once in the head and another time in the stomach. 25 years later, Garrett left this world the same way Billy the Kid did. On April 19, 1909, Wayne Brazel went to trial on a murder charge. A jury of his peers reached the verdict of self-defense. Rumors swirled that others were involved in the shooting and that Brazil was named as a shooter since he was single. In other words, Garrett came to his end by someone else's hand. Garrett was buried at the Oddfellows Cemetery in Las Cruces, New Mexico. One of his nine children, a daughter named Ida, was buried there as well. Oddfellows was Las Cruces' oldest cemetery. However, by the 1950s, it was littered with weeds, beer bottles, barbed wire, and vandalized tombstones. It looked like a dump. In contrast, the Masonic Cemetery across the street was well-kept. Perhaps this was the reason one of Garrett's sons moved his father and sister's graves there. Now, Jesse Wayne Brazel, who was 32 when he shot Garrett, was born in Kansas. The family went to Texas and then to Lincoln County, New Mexico. As a teenager, he worked on W.W. Cox's Ranch in San Agustin. From there, he went on to raise goats. After he was acquitted, he moved to Lordsburg, New Mexico. He married Olive Boyd in 1910 and had a son, but his wife died a year later. In 1913, he proved up on his homestead and immediately sold the property to Joe Olney. He left to Arizona to work as a manager for a cattle company. Later, he disappeared and it was rumored he was killed in 1950 in Bolivia by the outlaw Butch Cassidy. In November 2016, a document dating back about 100 years was found inside a box of unarchived records in New Mexico. It was discovered by Angelica Valenzuela, the records supervisor in the county clerk's office. There was an effort to preserve records spanning from around 1850 to the mid-1960s. Dated July 9, 1908, quote, The nearly illegible handwritten coroner's jury report refers to the investigation of the death of Pat Garrett who served as sheriff in Lincoln and Doña Ana counties. The document was signed by several justices of the peace and coroners and stated that the deceased Garrett came to his death by gunshot wounds inflicted by one Wayne Brazel. This was contrary to the information contained in the book Riata and Spurs by Charles Seringo, a one-time Pinkerton detective, published in 1912, where he claimed Garrett was killed by Jim Miller of Picos. Years passed, and families who lived in this stretch of land had their lives intertwined even further. On August 8, 1946, James Robert Gilliland, described as a typical pioneer western cowman as any author of scenario, song, or story could ask for, passed away. In the last few years of his life, he was seen on the streets of Tularosa, Alamogordo, Las Cruces, or El Paso, where he exchanged stories. He was a very jovial, forthright in speech and said exactly what he meant in simple, everyday English, embellished with a cowman's vernacular. He was born in Brown County, Texas on March 22, 1874. When he was twelve, his family moved their small herd of cattle to near Deming on the Mimbres River, soon after they moved to the Sacramento Mountains and established what became known as the Gilliland Farm. He worked with different ranchers in the Tularosa Valley as well as the White and Sacramento Mountains. It was while working on Oliver Lee's ranch that he was indicted with Lee for being implicated in the murder of Colonel Fountain. This was the same man who represented Billy the Kid when he went to trial for the murder of Sheriff Brady. On February 4, 1896, Colonel A.J. Fountain and his eight-year-old son Henry disappeared from Las Cruces. It was feared he'd been murdered on White Oaks Road. The colonel was the attorney for the New Mexico Cattlemen's Association, and he had taken his son on a visit to Lincoln County, New Mexico, to attend court. The trial involved a number of parties charged with stealing cattle from members of his association. A stage driver running from Las Cruces to White Sands came across Colonel Fountain and the boy in a buckboard as they were returning from Lincoln. The next morning, the driver on his return trip to Las Cruces noticed the tracks of the colonel's buckboard turn off the main road, and head in the direction of the Jicarilla Mountains. It seemed odd Colonel Fountain would head in the opposite direction from Las Cruces. The driver then saw the tracks of five horses following the buckboard. From there, the stage driver headed to Las Cruces, where he informed authorities. They went out to where the driver described finding the tracks. The buckboard was found, but there was no sign of the colonel or his son. The horses were gone as well. A box under the wagon seat in which he kept his papers had been pulled out and rummaged through. A posse of 25 men rode out to find them, organized by Albert and Jack Fountain, sons of Colonel Fountain. Initially, they feared the pair were murdered by cattle thieves and smugglers who infested the Higarilla Mountains. It seemed this was retribution for prosecuting cattle thieves. The posse came across the hoofprints headed towards the Wilbur Ranch. This juncture already had a bad reputation, as a man named Nesbitt was killed there a few years before. About 10 miles from where the buckwood was found, They came across traces of a campfire where the men, along with their prisoners, had stayed. There were three of them that wore high-heeled boots. Six miles from the camp, the horse tracks separated, two going north and three continuing to the east. Governor Thornton arrived in Las Cruces to consult with the prosecuting attorney. As the days passed, it was feared they were murdered and not being held for ransom. Then a gray horse, which Colonel Fountain was leading, showed up at a little ranch at the edge of the sands two and a half miles west of Luna's Well. The second horse turned up at Goolies, and the third at Adam Dieter's ranch. All the animals were covered in dust and foam, which gave evidence they had been ridden hard. The posse planned to continue their search in every direction from Chalk Hill for a hundred miles. By February 23rd, neither Colonel Fountain or his son Henry had been found. Then information came from Tula Rosa, which described were three men, one an American and the other two supposed to be Mexicans, followed the colonel from Lincoln through Mescalero and out upon the San Agustin Plains. The three were seen by several persons who didn't know the men but could identify the horses. Mr. Olguin, the mail carrier of Doña Ana, crossed paths with Colonel Fountain west of Luna's and saw the three men following him. He saw them again four days after the disappearance of Fountain and his son. They went through Nogal Pass to the agency and back towards Lincoln. Their horses appeared to have been ridden hard. It was then proposed that Pat Garrett be made a deputy sheriff of Doña Ana County at a salary of $500 per month. However, there was an impediment since Garrett was a citizen of Texas and not New Mexico. Garrett, known as a desperado hunter, was instead hired as a private detective on the case by the governor. It was not until May 1896 that the body of Colonel Fountain and his son was found in an old mining shaft. The colonel had been shot through the head, and the boy's skull appeared to have been crushed with a heavy stone. Before this, there had been rumors of sightings of the pair in Mexico City and South Africa, all which were proven to be false. In October 1897, Major Eugene Van Patten, the New Mexico Militia, had been detailed by Governor Otero to organize three mounted companies of infantry at Las Cruces, Mesilla, and elsewhere in Doña Ana County, and patrol the mountains and plains of Doña Ana and the adjoining counties where organized bands of stock thieves were said to be flourishing. Part of their mission, it was believed, would be to ferret out the murderers of Colonel Fountain and his son, who were assassinated two years before while crossing the white sand plains east of Las Cruces. In December of that year, the legislature sought to legalize the reward of $5,000 offered by the governor for the arrest and conviction of the colonel's murderers. 1897 was an election year in New Mexico, and each party promised to bring the perpetrators to speedy justice. Due to the murder of Colonel Fountain, the reputation of Doña Ana County suffered, since it appeared a good citizen and his son could be kidnapped and killed without any arrest more than a year after the crime, as it was noted by the local newspapers. The fair name of New Mexico demands this, and we sincerely hope it will be accomplished. It wasn't until April, 1898, that a new district attorney took over in Doña Ana County and he gave Pat Garrett the go-ahead to search for the murderers. His first arrest was William McNew and William Carr, two cattlemen living in the Sacramento mountains. Judge Parker issued two more warrants and Garrett, with a posse of seven men, went to the mountains where they tried to arrest Oliver Lee and J.P. Gilliland. At the preliminary hearing, Saturnino Nino the mail carrier, testified that Colonel Fountain had called attention to three horsemen who had been traveling off the road and in advance of him for some distance, and asked if he knew them. He could not identify them, but thought they wore American hats. They questioned Jack Fountain and Captain Brannigan, an old government scout, who had gone out with the original posse based on the information given by the mail carrier. Witnesses were also introduced to show motive. They testified that the colonel, prior to his demise, had been vigorously prosecuting cattle thieves and rustlers, and upon his return from the trip, was set to obtain indictments against at least two of the defendants, McNew and Lee. In August 1898, Lee and Gilliland were negotiating their surrender. They were willing to turn themselves over to George Curry, the newly appointed sheriff of Otero County, which had just been formed. They were deeply suspicious Of Pat Garrett, rumors being that if he brought them in they wouldn't make it back alive. When Pat Garrett attempted to arrest them they fought back and a member of the posse was killed. Both of them escaped. Some newspapers proposed that due to New Mexico negotiating with possible murderers they would not be admitted to to statehood, saying it was better for Uncle Sam to place the territory under martial law. In June 1899 Oliver Lee and James Gilliland were acquitted of Colonel Fountain's murder. They were kept in custody to answer for the murder of Deputy Sheriff Kearney, who was killed at Lee's Wildy Well the prior summer, even though Garrett admitted that Kearney fired first. During the turmoil of the Fountain murder, James Gilliland married Adela Gould, the daughter of a Sacramento mountain ranchman. In 1902, they established what became known as the Gilliland Ranch, stocking it with a small herd of cattle. It was located in Socorro County and in the San Andreas Mountains. He operated it for more than 37 years and sold it in February 1940. The couple traveled around a bit and then settled in Hot Springs. Prior to retiring, he was elected a member of the advisory board with the U.S. Grazing Service, and he was also a peace officer for many years. He belonged to the Masonic Lodge and also the Odd Fellows Lodge. He was buried in the Tularosa Cemetery with Masonic rites conducted. One of his pallbearers was W.W. W. Mac Brazel, Wayne Brazel's grandnephew who almost a year later would find strange debris scattered across the Foster Ranch. On October 16, 1947, Elizabeth, Pat Garrett's blind daughter, died under mysterious circumstances on the streets of Roswell, New Mexico, as there were no witnesses present. She was walking home during an electrical blackout in the city. It was believed that after crossing the street with her guide dog Tinka, she tripped on the curb, fell, and hit her head. Elizabeth was interviewed shortly before her death and was quoted as saying, Quite frequently my father had to bring Harmony with a gun in the early days. I tried to do so by carrying a tune." And now we go on to a second mystery within a mystery, which is the last resting place of the Boy Bandit King. On August 30th, 1950, a tombstone with the inscription, The Boy Bandit King, He Died As He Lived, Disappeared From a Grave in the Old Fort Sumner Cemetery, it was also inscribed with truth and history, 21 men, below this were cross revolvers. Fort Sumner was a military post in the 1860s. It was established on the east bank of the Pecos River. As many as 700 infantry and cavalry troops were stationed there until 1869, then it was abandoned. The buildings and land were purchased by Lucien B. Maxwell. He lived there until his death. There is no trace left of the adobe buildings that made up Fort Sumner present day. In 1907, the remains of soldiers who were buried there until the fort was abandoned were moved to the National Cemetery in Santa Fe. Some say that Billy the Kid's remains were mistaken for those of a soldier and moved as well. If this were true, it would make the following antics quite ironic. In 1940, a black tombstone was erected to mark the last resting place of William Henry Bonner, Kid Antrim, or Billy the Kid. Perhaps the summit represented a time when an outlaw could become a hero. No doubt, this allure is what prompted the robbery of the memorial in 1951. Enclosed by a seven-foot steel fence and weighing at least 100 pounds, the robbery had to be carried out by more than one person. For 26 years, no one knew where the tombstone was at, until Mr. and Mrs. Branham, who were visiting the museum, told a museum employee where it could be found, in a field near a ranch in Granbury, Texas. The town is about 60 miles southwest of Dallas. Authorities, when asked, said that for years it served as a local curiosity for the town, after it was accidentally discovered by a local resident. Joe Bowlin, who owned the Fort Sumner Museum, brought the tombstone back to the cemetery in 1976. On February 3rd, 1981, someone took a crowbar to the fence and carried away the granite tombstone on the centennial year of the kid's death. Ten days later, the DeBaca County Police received An anonymous tip that it could be found in a house on Delaware Street in Huntington Beach, California. They found it in a bedroom of a house belonging to Walter Nicholson, age 25. Big Jim McBride, a DeBaca County Sheriff, flew to Los Angeles to bring it back to New Mexico. Once recovered, iron shackles were used to keep it in place. There is another version of what happened at the midnight hour in Pete Maxwell's bedroom in July, 1881, that again might put in doubt who exactly lies under the memorial in Fort Sumner Cemetery. Some believe that William Bonney was spared by Pat Garrett, and he disappeared into anonymity, taking on the name of Ollie L. Roberts, better known in the Texas town of Hico as Brushy Bill. He died in 1950 at the age of 90. During the 1960s, C.S. Holmes of Clovis obtained a copy of an old grand jury indictment in Seymour, Texas, It was filed in Hardiman County, Texas on December 28, 1881, charging a man of murder. Witnesses who testified were listed as W.A. Tackett, Jack Grishman, Billy the Kid, and Sam Watson. Considering this was five months after Pat Garrett put Henry Bonney in his grave, either this was an imposter or someone else had been buried on August 15, 1881. Jimmy Ramey, a school principal in Eagle, said during a phone interview in February of 1981 that he remembered an old man who lived in the town during the 1940s and said he was Billy the Kid. Most knew him as Brushy Billy, recognizable with his large hat, plaid shirt, a handlebar mustache, and a gray beard. He was not a tall man, maybe 5 feet 7 inches, and occasionally he would chew on tobacco. Most of the town smiled and nodded their head when Brushy Billy would talk about being Billy the Kid, but just dismissed it as flights of imagination from an eccentric old man. Charles Mackin grew up in Hiko and remembered Brushy Billy. His wife described a story her husband recounted. He, Brushy Billy, supposedly went to Santa Fe in the 1940s to get a pardon from the governor. They wouldn't issue a pardon to him until they found if he was really Billy the Kid. They found a Mexican man who was familiar with Billy the Kid and introduced the two in Santa Fe, Henry Bonney's one-time friend said the old man had to be Billy, because he knew secrets only the kid would have known. However, this did not get Brush his pardon, and he returned to Higo. He never owned a car, and instead rode a painted horse until the day he died. He had buck teeth and speckled eyes, and old age did not rob him of his ramrod posture. The alternative story of what happened was that Garrett and the kid were friends, and the supposed shooting was a ruse to allow Billy to escape justice and the public eye. A derelict was supposedly buried in the kid's place. Brushy Billy had to compete with another man named John Miller, who claimed he was the kid. Miller never publicly claimed the identity of William H. McCarty. It only received recognition after his death when friends spoke of his stories. John Miller is first found in historical records on August 8, 1881, as a bridegroom when he married Isadora in Las Vegas, New Mexico, Territory. At the ceremony, he carried a gun on his hip and appeared to have a fresh bullet wound in his chest. This was visible through his shirt. The couple left town right after, heading west. Miller rode a horse along with seven head of cattle and his wife followed with a fully loaded wagon. They traveled that night and slept during the day, stopping at Albuquerque, before continuing west until they came to El Morro. They stopped at the mining town of Reserve, where Miller nursed his wounds. Once recovered, Miller, with wife and tow, went to the quemado area where he worked as a cook at nation's ranch a gunfight broke out between miller and a mexican ranch hand neither was wounded but miller lost his job the couple returned to el moro then continued to the zuni mountains in the new mexico territory along the way they met jesus iracho a cattleman who hired miller to look after a large herd the deal iracho made with him was that at the end of five years miller could keep half of the new cattle born during those years the couple kept themselves living in caves or squatting in abandoned homesteads. At the end of five years, Idiacho kept his word, and Miller built a house and ranch south of Rama in a place that would become known as Miller's Canyon. Miller prospered as a rancher in the years that followed. They were well liked by the community in the Rama Zuni area. However, Miller never failed to wear a pistol and keep a loaded rifle by the door of the house. His friends witnessed his skill with a pistol and later described where Miller could tell stories of Billy the Kid and the Lincoln County War. He also showed them various bullet scars he had on his body. He demonstrated he could get out of being tied up. Miller, though, never said he was Billy the Kid, but many of his friends came to believe he was. A few times, when he was drunk, he would say he was the Kid, only to deny it once he was sober. His wife, Isadora, did say he was Billy the Kid. The couple had a chest they always kept locked, and which some suspected contained proof that that Miller was Billy the Kid. Around the turn of the century, the couple adopted a two-year-old Navajo boy, which was left abandoned by his mother in the forest. Miller found the baby and brought him home. They named him Max and raised him as their child. They didn't have children of their own. Wherever there are cattle, there are rustlers, and many times Miller acted as an intermediary between the outlaws and the ranchers. He would bargain with them for the return of the stolen animals. One neighbor said that in 1902... Miller, along with six outlaws, traveled to Montana, where they robbed a bank of $8,000. However, this story has never been substantiated. In 1918, pestilence and drought visited the land, and Isadora was losing her eyesight. She also had a hand injury, and Miller was suffering from rheumatism. Their ranch was just about ruined. Their son, Max, who had joined the U.S. Army, was listed as missing in action in Germany the couple gathered their things and headed to the small town of San Simon in Arizona. Max did not die and turned up after being discharged from the service. Two years later, in search of easing his rheumatism, they moved to the town of Buckeye, which was known for their mineral springs. Miller worked as a horse trainer and soon saved enough money to build another ranch near the town of Liberty. They again were popular among the neighbors who also came to believe he was Billy the Kid. Towards the end of the 1920s, the Miller home caught fire with Isadora inside. She was pulled out, but by then she was dead, probably from smoke inhalation. After his wife's death, Miller's health deteriorated. After falling from a roof he was repairing, his son took him to the pioneer home in Prescott, where he was admitted in 1937. Sensing his end was near, Miller tried several times to have his son or his friends visits so he could set the record straight, but perhaps they thought there was more time. He died on November 7, 1937, and was buried with pioneers in the Pioneer Home Cemetery. After his death, the trunk Isidore and him had carried with them became the property of the courts in Phoenix. A court representative went to Rama, looking for Miller's heir. He interviewed several of Miller's friends and allegedly told them the contents of the trunk proved he was Billy the Kid. They couldn't locate Max, and the current whereabouts of the trunk are unknown. In 2005, John Miller's DNA was obtained in order to compare it with blood traces taken from a bench where supposedly the kid's body was placed after being shot by Pat Garrett. The bench was discovered on a Fort Sumner ranch. The results have not been made public, so the mystery of who is buried in the cemetery at Fort Sumner remains unsolved. However, let's go back a few months to the summer of 1947. And this is what happens when you're a witness to the forbidden. Again, many consider the Roswell incident as the jumping-off point for modern ufology. However, those who were there at the beginning found that being a witness was more a curse than a gift. It all started when William MacBrizelle, 48, who was a manager or foreman, at the J.B. Foster Sheep Ranch that was located about 30 miles from the small town of Corona, New Mexico found something out in the fields. Now, the Brazell family lived in Tularosa and Max stayed in a shack without running water, electricity and a phone. The nearest neighbor was almost a dozen miles away. At the beginning of July 1947, he came across metallic debris spread over the scraggly grazing grounds in an area of about 200 yards. Besides being out of place, he saw that the sheep wouldn't cross the field where the strange material lay. He packed a box with a sample and told the Chavez County Sheriff about his find. Brazil's main concern was to have the area cleaned. Sheriff Wilcox notified the personnel at Roswell Army Airfield. Major Jesse Morsell and Captain Sheridan Cabot went to view the debris the same day and take it back to the base by July 8th. Colonel William Blanchard, the commanding officer at Roswell, issued a press release that claimed a quote, flying disc, end quote, had been found. No sooner had the press release been sent out than Brigadier General Roger M. Ramey, his superior, held a press conference in Fort Worth contesting the UFO version and instead describing it as the remnants of a ray-wind target used to determine the direction and velocity of winds at high altitudes. By July 9th, Newspapers were reporting that W.W. Brazel was sorry he had said anything about it. He couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. He said, quote, If I find anything short of a bomb, it's going to be hard to get me to talk, end quote. Brazel had no idea that there had been reports of flying saucers throughout 43 states for the past several weeks. However, prior to this, Mac Brazel had found weather balloons twice on the ranch grounds, and he stated, I am sure what I found was not any weather observation balloon." But there was more going on in the background than the conflict of what the debris was. The incident might have faded from the public's attention, but those at the center of the discovery had their lives changed forever. Mac Brazel was placed in military custody at the base between July 7th to the 8th. Some have wondered if any of the statements after this date were given by a coerced and frightened man. He was the only Roswell witness who was detained by the military. He was described as a man of few words, but his handshake was his bond. The incident was forgotten until 31 years later when Major Jesse Marcel spoke out and said the debris recovered at the ranch was not from this earth. By then, Mac Brazel had died in 1963 and his wife Maggie in 1975. Mac's son Bill was later interviewed by different ufologists, including Stanton Friedman, and he said his dad told him very little about what happened at Roswell, and that he said nothing to his mother either. The only person he thought his father had confided in was his wife, Shirley. She died in 1996. Mac's son believed his father took much of what he knew to the grave. There was no doubt he was bitter about being jailed for a week for what he thought was a good deed. His relatives believed that Mac's reticence In sharing his experience is that he was sworn to secrecy for patriotic reasons. Others think that the military threatened his family. Mack's youngest child, Vernon, was seven years old when the Roswell incident occurred. In 1958, he was reported to be serving on the fleet oiler USS Hasayampa as a gunner's mate third class in the Western Pacific. It's believed he saw the debris and possibly alien bodies at the crash site. The incident was said to have affected him profoundly. He left the state as soon as he could, never to return, and it's been reported he even changed his name. He died in 1967 while living in Montana, allegedly by his own hand. Another son, Paul, who worked for the J.B. Foster Ranch, where his father worked, died in 1997, but denied knowledge of any events. Max neighbors described that prior to his visit to Corona to report his discovery, he had been excited and talkative about what he found. When he returned, he wouldn't talk to anyone about it and would just change the subject. Another neighbour described where he saw Max surrounded by about seven military escorts as he walked down the street in Corona. Even years after the incident, Max's response to any inquiries was terse and short. In the book The Roswell Incident, published in nineteen ninety, it described where Max said the debris came from an airborne explosion, not a crash. The sparse vegetation was singed and the pieces were littered over a large area. The medal was different than anything he knew of which he could not cut, scratch, or whittle with his knife. Other witnesses said there were strange symbols on the medal. Max said they looked like wiggles that went pastel colors. There had been conjecture if the military's quick response to Max Fine was that this was not the first time they had come across a similar scenario. Frank Joyce was an announcer for KGFL and Roswell. He was the one that placed the story of Blanchard's description of a captured disc on the UP wire. Instead of being a story read only by Roswell and residents, it made it around the world. In 1948, he left to Albuquerque, never to return. He continued to work in television and radio. During later interviews, Joyce, like Brazel, was reticent about saying too much. The subject that seemed the most verboten was information about seeing bodies. Later, Mark Bazaar would tell close families and friends that letting the military authorities know about the debris field was the worst mistake he had ever made in his life.